Hey guys, it's Julio Ricardo Varela of Latino Rebels Radio, and if you are a fan of the show, you know that once in a while we feature the work of the Latino Media Collective. And so this week, we're featuring the work of the Latino Media Collective on Latino Rebels Radio. Enjoy. Escuchando in Washington and all points beyond. This is Oscar Fernandez, and you're listening to the Latino Media Collective, recorded at the studios of WPFW 89.3 FM, Washington, at Distrito Colombia, here on this Friday, October 4th, 2019. We're also heard on the internet on our own website, which is latinomediacollective.com. You can also find us on Twitter under the name at LMC underscore show. That is at LMC underscore show. And of course, live on WPFWFM.org. That's WPFWFM.org. Once again, this is Oscar Fernandez. And today on the show, we continue our special series on the undocumented and LGBTQ experience. The marginalized group within the marginalized group. The caravan within the caravan. This time we take a look on the undocumented LGBTQ experience as it pertains to health and how the U.S. government, as far back as the 1980s at the dawn of the AIDS epidemic, prevented immigrants from entering the country under the guise of public health concerns and quote-unquote national security. And so with us on the show today is Kenyon Farrell. 
He's a senior editor for TheBody.com and The Body Pro, which are both HIV-AIDS resource sites. He has an August article entitled, Using HIV to Justify Immigration Bans is a New, Here's the 35-Year History. And this was co-written by Giuliani Alvarenga as well. And Kenyon Farrell joins us in studio today. Welcome to the show, Kenyon Farrell. Oh, thank you very much, Oscar. Very glad to be here. It's good to have you with us. We've covered the issue of immigration this past summer, which has been a very difficult summer as it pertains to, you know, the conditions that immigrants are in right now in detention and how it amounts to concentration camps. We've seen um, ProPublica expose this secret Facebook chat of the racism and xenophobia by immigration authorities. We've seen how corporate media has exploited the tragic death of Oscar and Valeria Martinez and that infamous photo being shown about. We've even talked about the connection between immigration and global warming. But we haven't really covered that of the issue of public health and HIV and AIDS to the undocumented LGBTQ community. And doing this undocumented and LGBTQ experience shows Almost every guest we've had has, has mentioned the issue of AIDS, HIV, or, or public health in general. And so this is something that we want to talk to you about because this is, something, this is something that I feel went grossly under the radar this past summer, particularly that of the statement of the CPV chief of law enforcement operations regarding HIV and AIDS as it pertains to immigrants. I want to know if you could point this out because, again, this went grossly under the radar this summer. Sure. Yeah. So uh, this happened in late July. So uh, as you mentioned, Brian Hastings, who's the chief of law enforcement and operations with uh, the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol, in a testimony in front of Congress, when asked about whether the administration was intentionally separating children and parents, and they asked specifically about, um, you know, parents uh, who were uh, people who were HIV positive and was, were they intentionally separating children from, from their parents uh, living with HIV? And his response was, well, I would separate um, a you know, person who is HIV from their child because HIV is a communicable disease. Now, <laughs> HIV is a communicable disease, uh, but it is sexually transmitted. It's transmitted through blood. It is not transmitted by touching. It is not transmitted by saliva. It is not transmitted by coughing or, you know, uh, you know, which in the case of like tuberculosis is. So there's no um, public health threat to a child uh, just by virtue of uh, being carried by their parents. So there would be no reason for that. But that was uh, part of the uh, justification and just kind of goes to show just A, the level of, uh, you know, kind of willful ignorance uh, of, of the administration, not just about HIV, but also the things that they'll use uh, strategically to justify their uh, policies. That's a perfect word right there, willful ignorance, because we've known about this disease at least for the last 35 years, and it just seems like it's back to the future, turning back the clock with regards to understanding HIV and AIDS you know, in layman's terms, it's it's a real head-scratcher to me. With that said, though, you know, the Trump administration did not invent the latest series of discriminatory practices against people with HIV and, and AIDS. So in your article in thebody.com, can you tell us about the challenges faced by Haitian immigrants back in the early 80s at the dawn of the AIDS epi epidemic? Because we know about it 
as it pertains to here in the U.S., but with regards to Haitian immigrants, that's something that's not as well known. Sure. So um, we discovered HIV. It was initially uh, reported in June of 1981 as a gay cancer, right? Which which speaks to a level of like discrimination and homophobia in the government. Like, what is yeah. a gay cancer or a gay pneumonia? But that was sort of the original uh, way it was being talked about and reported. But once it was um, discovered that it was probably uh, an infectious disease and initially was thought of as gay-related immune deficiency <laughs> syndrome um, before we got to HIV, human immunodeficiency syndrome, um, we are human immunodeficiency virus. Um, the administration, uh, the Reagan administration in 1982, so about a year later after the first sort of discovery of, of HIV in the United States, Notice that Haitians who were um, trying to enter the U.S. who were taking boats in the Caribbean to try to, you know, reach Florida uh, to seek asylum from the political situation in Haiti, which, if you know history, the, the American government has, you know, a lot oh, yeah. to do with, um, particularly uh, at that particular point. Um, but the policy of the administration was to, um, you know, turn people away, the Haitians that they would turn away. They were letting some Cubans, particularly white Cubans, you know, into the country. But uh, if you were from Haiti, uh, you were uh, not allowed. So um, they noticed in 1982 that there were some um, Haitians who were, in fact, uh, with what we would now say who were, you know, had AIDS or who were, you know, HIV positive. And the administration um, at that point, in starting to craft its kind of public health messaging, kind of labeled Haitians specifically as a kind of cause of HIV. And um, that sort of began to fuel um, the, the first sort of statutes or policies around uh, immigration and HIV um, were actually targeted at Haitians to keep Haitians out of the country. Um, and I should say, too, that um, that the policy to keep Haitians out of the country actually went back into the Carter administration before Reagan. Yeah. And the Reagan administration just sort of kept it up. And, and you know, because of the AIDS crisis, uh, the sort of dawning of it had a reason to uh, use HIV to also then uh, say, well, you know, the Haitians are also bringing AIDS into this country. And so they need to be kept out as well. Exactly. One of the uh, staff members here on WPFW is of Haitian descent, and I told him ahead of time that we were going to have this issue, and he wanted to point out that it wasn't just asylum that LGBTQ Haitians were were coming to the U.S. for, but to escape murder. He said it, capital M M U R D E R murder during this period of time. On top of the other social political issues that you mentioned already, with of course, like many cases, U.S. support. On top of what you just mentioned right now, what were the four H's during this time in the 1980s as it pertained to Haitian Im immigrants here? Sure. So just after the um, kind of initial, you know, bans on on uh, Haitians entering the country with HIV, the government's initial sort of public health messaging uh, about the AIDS crisis was to tell people that, you know, if you're one of the four H's, then you have to worry about HIV. So the four H's were uh, homosexuals, hemophiliacs, heroin addicts, and, uh, and Haitians. And that was the original way that the uh, epidemic was framed and, and, and literally was rolled out as part of the, you know, sort of strategy to sort of communicate about HIV to 
uh, Americans from uh, public health officials. Um, and, and obviously, uh, kind of, even to this day, I mean, it's sort of set up a dynamic through which people, first of all, assumed that if they were not in any of those four categories, that they had no risk. And as we know now, <laughs> certainly it is a sexually transmitted uh, infection more than anything. Um, and, and certainly through, you know, sharing needles. Um, but uh, but that became the framework. And so, you know, it was a way to sort of tell uh, particularly, you know, white middle class Americans that if you're none of these things, you don't have to worry about this is a disease of those people. And, and frankly, the only people who really got any sort of sympathy at that time were, in fact, hemophiliacs. And in fact, our kind of biggest you know, sort of HIV sort of, you know, uh, policy uh, win that came out of the late 80s, early 90s, the Ryan White Care Act, which is mm. uh, a pot of money that provides, um, you know, HIV care. Uh, it provides money for HIV treatment and, and uh, drugs for people, you know, it was called Ryan White after a young white hemophiliac, right? So if you think yeah. of all the thousands of other people who died of AIDS, that we had to sort of use a you know young white hemophiliac as a kind of innocent in order to get a bill passed to serve what was a disease even at that point that was mostly black and brown and and queer and trans people. Yeah, you sort of took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to mention Ryan White at a certain point during this conversation because it is sort of a uh, I don't know what's the right word like a double edged sword with the Ryan White case because you're right it is. It did help uh, bring some degree of better awareness and understanding and resources and treatment for HIV and AIDS during that period of time. But again, like you said, unfortunately, a lot of black and brown people, hundreds of thousands, had to die before we even got to this point with the Ryan White case, unfortunately. And unfortunately, we're going to mention Ronald Reagan a lot in this case because, (laughs) you know, I don't think the younger generation right now understands just how callous and inhumane the Reagan administration, especially Ronald Reagan himself, was at the dawn of the AIDS epidemic and how little he cared. He It took him like five or seven years, correct me if I'm wrong, for him to even mention the word AIDS or to make any sort of you know, definitive statement, any kind of statement with regards to HIV and AIDS during that time. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, the thing with Ronald Reagan, I mean, if you listen to, you know, television now, especially we're gearing up for a presidential election. And, you know, for the last 20 years, the Republican Party and even a lot of Democrats, frankly, will talk about uh, Ronald Reagan as the sort of compassionate conservatism. <laughs> and that, you know, if the Republican Party could just return to the sort of values of Ronald Reagan, then, you know, you'd have a much more, you know, sort of diverse party and a party that was more, you know, kind of welcoming to a, a range of different people than the sort of white nationalist party that it has become. Um, but what is honestly true about Ronald Reagan is that actually Reagan became president precisely because of his cruelty and meanness to um, black and brown people, to the LGBT community, uh, and, and, and was seen really as a kind of answer to the wins that a lot of social justice movements had made in the 1960s and 70s. So he was seen as the counter to uh, the you know civil rights movement and black liberation movement, to the American Indian movement, to the feminist movement, to the gay and lesbian movement. I mean, those those movements, um, and, and frankly, the welfare rights movement, because a lot of people don't know the what we got during the 
Clinton administration in the mid-90s Welfare Reform Act was actually something Ronald Reagan was trying to pass in 1970 as governor of California. So, the, the, you know, re- welfare reform was very much based on, you know, that model of trying to make people work for, well, you know, work for their welfare benefits. Ronald Reagan was the, the architect of that. So this idea of Reagan as this kind of, uh, you know, centrist Republican, you know, figure doesn't really bear out. And in fact, uh, you're right in terms of the, you know, AIDS epidemic that it took until, uh, I think about 1986 before Reagan even said the word, you know, AIDS on television or HIV or in any public remarks. Um, and that was only done because the actor Rock Hudson, who was a friend of the Reagans, um, apparently went to the White House um, before he died and said to them, to Ronald and Nancy, that, like, I'm dying of AIDS, I'm gay, and uh you had better say something about it and, and do something. And so that was the only reason that Reagan uh, even, you know, kind of began to, to even mention the word AIDS. And then, of course, by 1987, the next year, the year the, you know, AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power or ACT UP is sort of formed initially in New York and spreads really globally and becomes the kind of main sort of organizational configuration that really begins to push the administration uh, both Reagan and then later Bush and then Clinton administrations to to actually uh, uh, really respond to the epidemic. Yeah, compassionate conservative. He was barely compassionate to Rock Hudson. Right. That I do remember. Um, I want to ask you in your article, who is Gaten Dugas? Because this is one of those articles where I had to read it two or three times because I, I almost did a double take because even now it seems kind of unbelievable to believe that this is something that people believed in or that something something like this was even presented as fact but this is an interesting story this also pertains to you know the affirmation Haitian immigrants that we mentioned but also to the issue of HIV and AIDS that I hope you could you could straighten out for me um, this this I guess you could say urban legend now of Gaten Dugas, who was he? Sure. So, so uh, Gaten uh, Dugas, or probably Dugas, he was a French Canadian uh, yeah. gay man who was a flight attendant. Who, um, you know, obviously is a flight attendant, traveled to a lot of different cities, and uh, who died of AIDS, I believe, in 1984. But the um, there became this sort of working theory. Um, first of all, that uh, there was a kind of a theory that you know. The HIV was brought into the U.S. via Haiti, first of all. Yeah. So that was part of the the sort of connection that not just that there were Haitians who happened to be HIV positive, but that actually the original route through which, you know, HIV got into the United States was from Haiti, uh, you know, which has never been proven. Um, but also that, uh, you know, Dugas was what was called patient zero. So the, yeah. the person who actually brought HIV into the United States. And people thought that because, uh, you know, he or assumed him to be uh, uh, promiscuous or what have you, that, um, well, he must have, being a French-Canadian, you know, having, you know, flown flights to Port-au-Prince or to other parts of Haiti, uh, contracted HIV in Haiti and brought it into the United States and, and sleeping with other, you know, gay men in the United States, is how HIV, you know, spread to to gay men in the United States first. So, and that theory um, 
became uh, very much kind of uh, rooted in the American mythology about HIV through a book first called And the Band Played On, yeah. uh, which was, uh, I think, published in 1987, and then a film uh, about uh Called and the band played on also, which you could still watch, um, which is is a you know a film version of the of the book, which which also uses the very same narrative that uh, Dugas was patient zero, and so the film is in the book is about kind of like how the CDC was trying to sort of figure out what was happening, and and where this this new infection was coming from or whatever, and so they you know have an actor in the film play him and and the whole deal. Um, and only uh, probably in the last five years, I think that through now different sort of technology, we have been able to prove that this man did not bring HIV. He was not patient zero. That's a myth. Uh, it did not bring HIV into the United States. But if we think about the sort of four H's, it helped kind of cement in the American imagination the connection between, you know, the sort of Haiti and homosexuals portion of like the four H's. Uh, as as uh, as particular vectors of of disease, the the film and the band played on. I don't think people realize how frighteningly over advertised this film was when it initially came out. HBO played it ad nauseum on on their channel back back in the nineties, and it's also infuriating because knowing what we know now, and even back then, it's based on the premise of of homophobia and transphobia, going back to the four H's that you just mentioned, right? Yeah, and people, and there were people who refuted that theory at the time, but they were not listened to, and people who refuted the theory about, you know, Haitians at the time, um, a lot, particularly a lot of uh, black American activists, uh, you know, were responding to, and, and Haitians in the United States, responding to um, what, you know, people felt rightly were, you know, kind of racist and, and homophobic theories of, of, of the disease. So can you give us details on the Reagan administration's pressure on the U.S. Public Health Service to add HIV to the list of excludable health conditions? Because, you know, even now I think we're just scratching the surface to the lack of humanity in the Reagan administration in regards to HIV and AIDS here. Sure. So um, because of the, you know, kind of growing epidemic in the United States, uh, the fears about, you know, Haiti that had been established, you know, about uh, HIV since 1982. Um, and then the, the book and the band played on comes out in 1987. Um, and this is at the time where just a year prior, 1986, where Rock Hudson sort of makes Reagan start to talk about the epidemic. But one of the things that Ronald Reagan does is his sort of way to respond to the epidemic is to um, pressure the U.S. Public Health Service to add HIV to a list of excludable health conditions, right? And despite there are a lot of, um, you know, protests about that. So the U.S. Public Health Service um, is, you know, able to, you know, to sort of do that. They will list, you know, uh, uh, excludable health conditions for people entering the country. Um, Tuberculosis is one, for instance. Um, You know, uh, Ebola is one. People remember the, um, you know, kind of Ebola out. Yeah, SARS, right, uh, bird flu, all, you know, the, all these things that you see sort of in the news that, you know, when you hear these stories about, oh, you know, um, there are travel bans on coming from certain countries or if you've traveled to these countries in the last 21 days, you still see those signs sometimes in the airport if you're flying, 
you know, internationally, or they'll, or sometimes even if I go to my doctor, like they'll just they'll ask, "Have you been to, you know, country, you know, in, you know, what have you been out of the country in the last twenty one days?" Right? Because they're tr- we're still trying to figure out if you like maybe have Ebola. Right? I mean, this is this still happens. So, um, so Ronald Reagan added HIV to the list of excludable um, conditions, uh, health conditions, to prevent people with HIV from traveling in the United States. Um, now, um, people, advocates and activists have been trying to get that removed um, after Reagan left office um, by the time that we got to uh, 1990 when uh, George uh, George H.W. Bush was yeah. in office, mm-hmm. uh, Bush Sr., and he ultimately uh, signed it into law to remove uh, HIV from the list of excludable conditions, but actually Congress overrode it and put it back in. Um, and uh, and it lasted, um, you know, for you know for many years. So, but but that was sort of how we ended up getting, you know, HIV kind of into the list of excludable conditions. And then and then Bill Clinton comes along and kind of adds more problems to the issue. Uh, so much more problems. And let me just say right now, since you already said it, to repeat it again, that even now there's still the stigma of immigrants, not just LGBTQ immigrants, but immigrants in general bringing diseases. You have people such as Lou Dobbs still on TV who who would push this idea that immigrants were bringing leprosy and among these other, you know, ridiculous um, cases that have no proof whatsoever. We're going to take a break right here. We're speaking with Kenyon Farrow. He's the senior editor for TheBody.com and The Body Pro. This is the Latino Media Collective. We're going to take a quick break right here. Back with more in a minute. Stay tuned.
listening to Latino Media Collective here on WPFW 89.3 FM, Washington, reminding everyone that you can also check us out on our own website, which is latinomediacollective.com. You can also follow us on Twitter under the name at LMC underscore show. That is at LMC underscore show. And of course, live on WPFW 89.3 FM, Washington. Once again, this is Oscar Fernandez, and this is part five of the Undocumented and LGBTQ series here on the Latino Media Collective. We're joined today by Kenyon Farrell, who's a senior editor for TheBody.com and The Body Pro as well. So, Kenyon, let's go now into the 90s as we continue to struggle for HIV and, and AIDS and AIDS um, rights, research, education, all these things. How would you, going into the 90s, how would you describe the battle for immigrant rights as it pertains to HIV during the 90s? Because there was some progress being made, but it was it was sort of a, at a snail's pace, to say the least. Yeah, so um, in the 1990s, I mean, one of the um, things that happened, which you mentioned in the earlier segment, was the you know Ryan White Care Act passed. And I, I think that it is important to talk about it in terms of uh, the it's kind of relationship to immigrants because it actually became a way for immigrants to actually get access to HIV care in the United States. So in that sense, that was a, a sort of a good thing. At the same time, there were still these struggles around um, immigration policy in terms of uh, people with HIV who were immigrants being able to enter the country. So um, the fight that was happening through the you know Bush senior administration about whether HIV would be added to the list of excludable health conditions. Again, uh, initially, uh, Bush uh, had removed uh, HIV, and, and really they removed everything but tuberculosis, uh, all the other conditions that were in the, the list as well um, at the time. But then Congress put those things back in. A lot of activists mm -hmm. um, fought that, uh, and uh, Bill Clinton had promised during his presidential campaign, so this would have been 1992, the end of yeah. Bush Sr.'s campaign before Clinton was elected uh, and then inaugurated in 93, um, that he was going to uh, take these, you know, uh, you know, take these out. Um, but he ultimately uh, signed the bill, uh, which left, uh, you know, HIV in as a excludable condition. Um, so this happened, and at the same time that there were 200 Haitians in Guantanamo Bay who were living with HIV um, in 1993. So, so part of what they were doing was quarantining them in Guantanamo Bay if they were uh, trying to, you know, uh, come through, uh, come, you know, come to Florida on on rafts and a range of other things that um, were, were happening at the time. And in fact, so Jesse Jackson... Um, you know, who had run for president twice at that point or whatever and was uh, sort of more active um, as a political activist in the United States, it actually staged a hunger strike against the Clinton administration uh, in order to get them to release uh, the Haitian um, immigrants who were being detained by the United States at Guantanamo Bay uh, for no other reason than they were living with HIV. I'm glad that you mentioned that because I don't want to get off track here, but it's a very important side note to mention why were Haitian immigrants um, interned in Guantanamo Bay at this time to begin with? And this is because of another U.S. overthrow 
of uh, of a president in in Haiti. This time, the democratically elected Haitian president right. of of Jean Patron Aristide, and not too many people know this, but the detainment of Haitians during this period of time is sort of the blueprint for the detention the detention of migrants that we see today on the U.S.-Mexico border. Not that many people realize it, but it should be noted because it also includes LGBTQ immigrants as well. So that brings us to, you know, moving forward into the Nichols Amendment. What was the Nichols Amendment? Yeah, so the Nichols Amendment was that bill that passed that uh, ended up uh, cementing into law. So it went from just being kind of a, a policy to being, you know, that the Reagan administration held, but then became law that uh, excluded, that added HIV, you know, legally to the list of uh, exclusions, uh, 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 communicable diseases that people could be then, you know, uh, banned from entering the, the people could be banned from entering the United States, uh, you know, for. And that bill basically lasted until the Obama administration with, you know, some tweaks that started to happen when uh, George W. Bush uh, was in office, but but basically became the the way U.S. policy for HIV uh, happened for many years, and and so you know so to that extent, there for almost twenty years, I think for nineteen years, the International AIDS Conference, which is a conference that happens every two years um, on the even years, and it goes from different cities around the world. Um, there have been an International AIDS Conference in the United States, I believe, in San Francisco. Uh, in the late 80s, but or, or maybe early 90s, but basically after the um, amendment passed, it wasn't until t- 2012 when the next international AIDS conference would be held in the United States because that was after the you know the ban was lifted ultimately. So, like you said before, there had been some progress, albeit albeit at a snail's pace, going up to 2009. Nonetheless, though, what damage had been done by this point for the LGBTQ immigrant community by this point because, you know, a lot of lives could have been saved had had things been better, at least from an immigrant point of view, um, better explained as far as, you know, excludable diseases is concerned. Sure. So um, I think one of the things that had been done, you know, damage-wise was, you know, it just it prevented, um, it created a situation where, so if there were immigrants, if you were already in the United States and living with HIV, um, it made it much more difficult for people to actually either want to get tested for HIV or want to come out about their status, whether or not they would have been deported or anything, but just knowing that that statute was there, it kept a lot of people kind of under the radar um, and not being able to seek um, treatment and care or even just to get an HIV test um, particularly if they were undocumented, right? So I think that it, it kind of had a, a chilling effect um, in terms of the work that, you know, people could do in terms of HIV education prevention and treatment for people who are immigrants in the United States for, you know, for many years. But then I think, you know, I mean, then there's just some of the, you know, the other impacts, I think, of the ban. So first of all, in the time since, um, you know, in from basically 2003 until the present day, there have been about 17 people that we know that have uh, died in, in ICE custody, um, you know, who were HIV positive. Um, and so oftentimes, you know, this in many ways mirrors what happens in the U.S. prison system. It really depends on 
where you are and and who decides whether to you get tested for HIV or whether or not you have access to treatment, even if you disclose. And we have documented cases of people who were in ICE detention who disclosed that they were living with HIV and needed access to medication and just weren't given it and who died yeah. uh, unnecessarily of AIDS while they were in custody. And, and so I think, you know, that is one of the... Um, you know, kind of standing, uh, you know, implications of what, you know, what what the ban and the sort of politics around HIV and immigration have meant in the United States. The most notable case that we've covered here and that many other LGBTQ guests that we've had on the show is that of, of Roxanne Hernandez, who, who died in ICE custody due to lack of medical care, not necessarily of the disease per se, but mainly because of lack of medical care. And this brings us now to the present point in time. And we haven't mentioned the Trump administration, but before we do, we should point out the irony of the Trump administration, even Trump, the individuals, his anti-LGBTQ statements and, and policy actions. The irony of him doing that, considering that his mentor, Roy Cohn, was a closeted gay man, who died of AIDS and didn't disclose it until after the fact, who was also, I, uh, I remember now, the, the attorney for the owners of Studio 54 back in the late 70s as well. And, you know, it's, it's, it just leaves people scratching their head if they know their history and, and their background to the issues that, that we mentioned here. But I want to go back to Roxana Hernandez because we have to make something very clear here. Under current federal immigration law, should LGBTQ immigrants receive medical treatment under organizations like ICE when they disclose that they have such diseases? Um, so absolutely, people uh, should should receive treatment. Um, first and foremost, I think just so people know, you know, we've come a, a very long way in terms of HIV um, treatment and care in the United States. So. You know, we had our the first, you know, um, you know, antiretroviral medications or people may remember in the mid 90s when the when it was the cocktail drugs. That was like, the yeah. you know, the, the, the language then. But it was the idea that you could take several different kinds of medications that would suppress the virus in your body. And so we went from, you know, first getting those um, medications on the market in the mid 90s. And sometimes those pills at the time were, you know, handfuls of pills. Sometimes they had really rough side effects that you had to take at different times. Some you could take with food, some you could take on an empty stomach, etc. So we've come from there to now, in most cases, most people with HIV are taking one pill a day in most places around the world, right? Mm -hmm. So treatment has gotten that good. And also, if people, um, you know, take treatment and get what we call virally suppressed or undetectable, they cannot transmit the virus. They cannot transmit the virus if they have sex without a condom, if they are uh, virally suppressed, right? This is known. Studies have been done. So this is just to say, like, the how uh, vile it is to then, um, you know, first of all, detain people often for very little, you know, any, any reason, um, you know, other than them not having whatever kind of paper, supposedly, to um, knowing how good treatment is and how it's keeping people alive and, um, and keeping people healthy without any other kind of health concerns um, if they're living with HIV in a lot of cases, what it means to then deny people that medication once they're in, in treatment to the extent that, then they, that they die. 
it, it's it's that much more cruel given how good treatment is if you think about it that way. I want to take this moment to remind everyone that Kenyon Farrow wrote an article article for thebody.com entitled Using HIV to Justify Immigration Bans Isn't New. Here's the 35-year history, and this was co-written by Giuliani Alvarenga. I bring this up because I really enjoy the work that you've done on thebody.com, not just you, but other people who have written on there. And it's a very important resource to have writers such as yourself to document this because it should be pointed out here at this moment in time that many people who were there at the dawn of the AIDS epidemic 35 years ago are not with us anymore. Some have come and gone, and a lot of important storytellers who may, whose work and whose voice may not have been as well documented now, you know, may, may as well not have been well documented back then as it is now, are not here with us right now. And one of those that you mentioned in another article, a separate article that you did earlier this year, was the case of Andy Velez. So for those people who may not know, who is Andy Velez or who was he? Uh, so Andy Velez uh, was a Puerto Rican activist, uh, gay man in New York City uh, who um, was active uh, in ACT UP uh, pretty much from its early inception in the 80s. And, I mean, just went on to do uh, an amazing amount of, of work uh, in New York City. I always, I think and I just said it in the article that I, you know, wrote when Andy uh, died a few months ago was that I, in my, you know, 20 years essentially of living in New York City and, um, you know, participating in a range of different actions, and not just HIV ones, around housing, around harm reduction, around LGBT youth, around you know, mass incarceration and police brutality, I cannot remember a rally or an action that I ever attended that Andy Velez was not present. Mm. <laughs> um, and so it just speaks to his commitment to, um, you know, social justice issues um, for people. And Andy also mentored a lot of young activists, too. Um, and I think, and so we just, you know, lost Andy. And actually, there's about to be, um, I think, this Friday a memorial in New York City, um, the you know kind of you know community memorial for for Andy's passing, um, coming up, which I'm um, really excited about. And you know, and he made films and shot a lot of like his an incredible amount of like photography from the you know years of living in New York City and of uh, you know of the piers and the West Village culture um, for a long time. So he did a lot of interesting work. And in, in addition to, um, you know, his, his work as a, as a organizer and activist and, uh, is sorely missed in New York city for certain. Yeah. And I mentioned his name because, you know, whenever someone like that passes on, it's just an, it's, a it's another page loss in this very important in history for the LGBTQ community, mm -hmm. especially for, for those in that generation at the dawn of the AIDS epidemic. I'm not saying this because you're here, and this may be speculation on my part, but who knows how many lives could have been saved if there were organizations like thebody.com who were raising awareness, you know, in much the way you're doing right now. You know, with that said, you know, speaking of raising awareness, um, since you're here live in studio with us here in Washington, D.C., it's worth noting what brings you to Washington, D.C. this this week. Sure. So I'm here actually uh, to cover uh, a 
conference um, called uh, ID Week. And um, ID, in this case, stands for uh, Infectious Disease Week. So it's an annual conference of the uh, Infectious Disease Society of America, which are uh, an essentially an association of uh, medical doctors who do uh, infectious disease work. And so, you know, folks who do a range of things, not just HIV, but other STIs and other, uh, you know, just in infectious disease conditions, tuberculosis, et cetera. Um, so, and it's usually a few thousand people. So it's a pretty big conference of doctors. And it's uh, one of the conferences that we cover. Um, our site, thebody.com, is more uh, sort of, you know, layperson, community, you know, site for news and information about HIV, LGBT health, harm reduction. We're doing a lot of stuff about the opioid crisis as well. And we cover it around, you know, every, you know, range of different communities in the United States. Um, but our site, The Body Pro, is kind of geared more, the pro really is for professionals, um, so people who sort of work in uh, the HIV field. So there we cover a lot of the HIV sort of research news and go to conferences like this and cover, you know, some of the, you know, kind of latest news and things that are happening within in the conference. So if even if you're not a, a you know, a person who works in HIV, but you're kind of a uh, kind of science and public health geek or want to know about healthcare. <laughs> um, it's also a great resource because you'll learn a lot on the Body Pro about, uh, you know, kind of what's happening in a space of, of, of research. And at a place like ID Week, they, there are a lot of physicians who are also activists. I mean, I last year when the conference was in San Francisco, you know, recall um, uh, Melanie Thompson, who's a, a, an HIV doc from Atlanta, Georgia, and a few other ones really calling out the medical, you know, community uh, that it's time to be activists, right? And and it's great to, you know, serve your patients, but given the threats to, you know, the Affordable Care Act, given, you know, the threats to, uh, you know, immigrants and undocumented folks in this country, to, you know, police brutality and black communities, a range of things, that this is the time that, like, physicians actually have to do more than just, you know, uh, see patients, right? And so, it's a conference where also that kind of uh, spirit, you know, of, of activism from physicians and providers also lives. Well, you know what? Truth be told, we should all be health geeks, especially <laughs> as it pertains to HIV and AIDS, because I'm old enough to remember, you know, when the AIDS epidemic started. I may have been six, seven years old, but I still remember, you know, the fear in here in Washington, D.C. at the very least. And even though we've said that there's been some advancement, a lot of advancement with regards to how medicine is taken, how it's how it's uh, researched, how it's funded, the fear of HIV and AIDS should not go away no matter which generation we're talking about because it's still a very deadly disease. And on top of that, it's more deadlier when there's willful ignorance by the government, whether the U.S. government or any other government for that matter. So we're almost out of time. We have about five minutes left. So it's still an ongoing problem for the undocumented LGBTQ community with regards to social social justice here. Even now, immigrants are being um, blamed for the new outbreak of measles here in the U.S. You know, it's more... You know, there are people in corporate media saying this has more to do with immigrants as opposed to ignorance towards vaccination, you know. Right. I mean, if you it's the last few years, um, you know, I've been following, unfortunately, uh, you know, Breitbart.com and some of the kind of right wing websites. And, and even in the Obama administration, they were talking about, you know, immigrants coming into this country, spreading diseases, 
tuberculosis they talked yeah. about a lot, um, or range of things. So there was already an infrastructure for understanding um, what we so what we now see in terms of now having a president that is you know detaining people and separating families, et cetera, at the border. But um, the a lot of the sort of groups that supported Trump's you know kind of rise as a figure and then getting into office. And we're already promoting this idea of, um, you know, immigration as like a, a way in which, you know, kind of, you know, diseases will come into the United States or whatever. So, um, yeah, that has been been very active in terms of a lot of the quote unquote alt right or white nationalist kind of like uh, rhetoric. Yeah, and it, unfortunately, it shows no end in sight, and it just speaks volumes to the willful ignorance of medical science under the guise, under the dark shadow of racism, xenophobia, homophobia, and transphobia. And so this is why outlets such as thebody.com and the Body Pro are so important even now, today, and tomorrow with regards to understanding public health. So with that said, we've been speaking with Kenyon Farrow. He's the senior editor for TheBody.com and The Body Pro. His August article is entitled, Using HIV to Justify Immigration Bans is a New. Here's the 35-Year History. It's co-written by Giuliani Alvarenga, and we're going to post this on our Twitter account as well. So Kenyon Farrow, thank you very much for being on the show with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And with that said, that is it for today's show. We want to remind everyone that you could check out this episode and our previous episodes on our website, which is latinomediacollective.com. You can also follow us on Twitter under the name at LMC underscore show. And of course, live on WPFWFM.org. That's WPFWFM.org. So on behalf of my co-producer, Abby Roberts, this is Oscar Fernandez saying thank you very much, everyone, for listening to the show. That's it for today's show. Adios. Nos vemos. Ciao.